God, you are always good to us. We need that reminder. In the moments when uh, it looks like you are far away or you don't care. In the moments when it looks like you are being unnecessary in your allowance of trials. Maybe it feels like there's nothing being produced. We, we trust you. We know that you are working all things together for our good, and then there's moments where we just wonder if that's even true. And so when we sing, you are good to me. You are all I need. I will taste and see. You are always good. That's the key word, always. And so, Father, we ask, as we have just sung, grant us the faith to know that your hand holds our lot, and that is a good thing. We don't want our lot in any other hand, because we know you and you alone are always good. Father, be our guide this morning. Be our teacher. May we learn how to wait upon you and your goodness towards us. We pray in your name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, while you are sitting down, a little bit of housekeeping for you all. Number one, as you came in here, you should have seen uh, communion elements on your chair. If there wasn't one, there might be one in the front that you can find. might be one on a chair that is not being utilized right now. So you can grab one of those communion elements. Uh, they are very uh, impersonal. You can see they look like this, a little coffee creamer cup with a little wafer on, on top of it. So they're very impersonal not the way we want to do it. The way that we would really love to do it is share a meal together and then pass around a big cup of juice and a big thing of bread. And uh, that's not good even when coronavirus isn't happening. So we decided we'll just go with this. Uh, but we drove around over the weekend to uh, those of you that contacted me to let me know that you weren't going to be here. Uh, to those that are live streaming, we drove around to give these to you. Uh, there were a couple people that we missed and we are very, very sorry for not being able to take these to everybody. Um, and then there are some of you that I, I don't see you here, but you also didn't ask or email. And so you don't have elements either. And so we're sorry that you weren't able to grab these elements. But here's the good news is you can find in your own home maybe uh, some bread and some juice. And you can prepare those. We'll be taking these at the end of our service together. Uh, these elements are for believers. So if you're just live streaming, you're tuning in, you don't know what all this is about. You don't know... Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Don't worry about this. We'll talk about it at the end, but these elements are for believers. And then, Lord willing, we'll be able to give these out to everybody to make sure that if you're at home and not able to be here, uh, you can partake with us. Uh, a couple other uh, housekeeping things. First of all, thank you so much to Sam and uh, Michaela for running everything again. They have done an excellent job uh, making all this happen. For those of you who came early today, we were here at 7, setting everything up. Good news is we get to leave everything set up at the end of our service, so praise the Lord for that. We don't have to tear anything down. Um, and then just make sure uh, you can see that the carpets were freshly clean. Make sure as you open up that communion cup, you're very careful in doing so. All right, that's it for housekeeping. If you have your copy of God's Word, uh, take them and turn with me to the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk chapter Three, Habakkuk chapter 3, Jerry Bridges writes, Sharing in suffering 
unites our hearts together in Christ more than any other aspect of fellowship. I believe that to be true, and I believe that's why our hearts have been knit together in deeper ways than maybe even before coronavirus happened, than even these latter days, the, uh, um, the riots that have been happening, everything that we've been seeing around us. We see suffering going on, we experience suffering, we go through trials, and it unites our hearts together in Christ more than any other aspect of Christian fellowship. Habakkuk is going through it as we've been studying this book together. He's wrestling with God. He's struggling with what he knows about God and what he's experienced in, in life. He's seen those two things. They seem to be, be different. What he knows about God, what he's experiencing in life, they seem to be different. And at some point in your life, maybe it's this last week. Maybe it was before this last week. Maybe it's this week. Maybe it's in the near future. At some point in your life, your experience is going to be like Habakkuk's, where your life doesn't seem to align with who God is, with his character. Life by nature is untidy. We try to control things, but clearly we are not in control of anything. We're not in charge, and we are overwhelmed constantly. We find ourselves in difficulty, sadness, sorrow, troubles, and the question is, how do we respond when times are difficult? I want you to, I want you to think in your own life right now, I want you to think about what it is that you're going through that is the most difficult trying thing, the most difficult uh, time that you're going through currently. Maybe you are sharing in a family grief. Maybe you're experiencing conflict with friends. Maybe you're looking around, you see wrong is winning and right is losing. Justice and integrity are losing. Dishonesty and injustice are winning. How are we going to respond? Well, Habakkuk responded by lamenting. We've talked a lot about lamenting, crying out to God in lament. And here, at the end of our time in Habakkuk, we see Habakkuk's lament taking full transformative effect. He began by complaining, by bringing his complaints to the Lord, which God welcomes you to do so. He brought his complaints to God. And now, as he has been praying these provision prayers, he's moving into presence prayers. God, I just want your presence. If nothing around me changes, and I have you, I have everything I need. Things are going to change in Habakkuk's heart, even though things aren't changing for the better around him. And that's exactly what we want. We want to be able to have our hearts changed, even though the circumstances around us might stay the same or even get worse. So how do we do that? We do that by doing three things, and they're all here in chapter three of Habakkuk. We remember what God's done in the past. We trust God in the present, and we rejoice in the future because we have God no matter what happens. That's the threefold formula. If you want them in just R's, remember, rest, and rejoice. That's how you let lament take a transformative effect in your heart. You remember who God is in the midst of your trial. You call back to remembrance what God has done. You know who he is. You know how he works. You know how he operates. And you know that he always delivers his people. Even if it's delivering them through death, by death, he always delivers his people. So you remember, you rest in what God is doing in the present. Even though you might not like it, you rest in it. And then you rejoice, knowing that you have God, and that is all that you need. We talked about remembering last week, and now we are going to look just at one simple verse and bring out all the implications of that verse. It's verse 16. This is Habakkuk saying he's going to rest. I've remembered who you are, God, and based off of who you are, I can rest now in what you're doing. So let's just read verse 16 in Habakkuk chapter 3. 
I've heard, this is the report that God has shared. This is all of Habakkuk thus far. I've heard my inward parts trembled. At the sound, my lips quivered. Decay enters my bones, and in my place I tremble. Yet I will wait quietly for the day of distress, for the people to arise who will invade us. Father, we, we need your help not only to learn today to grow in our understanding of who you are and who we are, we need to see ourselves rightly in light of your glory and your holiness, but we also need your help on a regular basis, day by day, moment by moment, to wait. We are not a people who likes waiting. We don't like to wait, and we, especially when it comes to difficult experiences and circumstances, we don't want to wait for the trouble to pass us by. We want it to be over as fast as we can. But God, we as believers of all people should be able to wait quietly, to rest in your goodness. So Holy Spirit, open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law. We are filled with great anticipation of how you will address us this morning. We pray it in your name. Amen. So we began in chapter 3 by remembering Habakkuk is tracing what God has done in the past, knowing that God has not been idle in the past, therefore he's not going to be idle in the future. What God has done in the past, what he's going to do in the future. But what about the present? That's the concern. He's remembered what's gone on in the past, and he knows God's going to work the same in the future, but what about the moment here, the present in this moment now? Until the future, Habakkuk is forced to wait. And I don't know about you, but I hate waiting. I hate waiting. If I have the option of cooking something by either putting it in my oven and waiting or putting it in my microwave, and it might taste a little bit weirder, but I get it right away, I put it in the microwave, get it over with, cook it, and eat it. I was driving by Costco, and they have those huge awnings now in front where you have to stand in line to wait to get into the store. And whatever it is I was waiting, or whatever, whatever it is I was going to Costco to get, as I drove by the line, I just thought, it's not that important. I, I don't need it that badly. I'm not waiting in this line. I don't even remember what it was. I, it, it, that item can wait because I'm not waiting here. I don't like to wait. And I know that most of you don't as well. What are you waiting for? Maybe you're waiting for healing. Maybe you have been in the midst of some form of chronic pain or just your body isn't functioning right. And you're waiting, gone to doctors, had tests, and you're waiting and you're wondering, when is this ever going to get better? And you've been crying out to God for how many months and years? Maybe you're waiting for comfort. Maybe for peace. Maybe for a relationship in your family or a relationship in friends in your friend group, there's an estrangement in a relationship and you've been waiting and praying and you want to bring peace into that relationship, but it just isn't happening. What is it you're waiting for? For believers, we know that our God will provide for every need that we have. It's usually not our every want that we have, but every need. Therefore, we can grieve with hope, we can wait with hope, we can trust and hope 
And that's exactly what Habakkuk's going to show us this morning. So what I want to do this morning is just look at verse 16, draw out the implications, and then apply that to our lives together. After remembering what God has done in the past, knowing that he's going to do that in the future, Habakkuk says in verse 16, I heard, that's the report, the full report of what God said he's going to do, I heard, and based on my hearing, my inward parts trembled. Literally, my belly or my stomach has, it's trembling. He has a visceral reaction to what he knows is coming. Not only is he having a reaction to God's word, it's a, a mark of a godly man or woman to tremble at God's word. Isaiah chapter 66 verse 2 says this, to this one I will look to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. But also what the word contains. Habakkuk knows destruction is coming. Babylon's coming to discipline and destroy Israel. I heard this report and I'm terrified. Hebrew parallelism puts two lines that say about the same thing. Uh, Synonymous parallelism says about the same thing just in different ways. You can see that here. I heard my inward parts trembled. Second line, at the sound, that's what he heard, my lips quivered. That's parallel to the inward parts trembling. At the sound, the report that's coming, my lips quiver and decay enters my bones. Decay enters my bones. Literally, it's my frame goes limp as if my bones were failing me. Decay enters my bones. So it's like all of my bones just failed at the exact same moment and I just fell over limp. I can't hold myself up because I'm so terrified of what's about to happen. And in my place, I tremble. Literally, the Hebrew there, beneath me I shook. So I'm shaking so badly that the ground below beneath me is shaking. I'm, I'm quivering, I'm shaking so badly, it's as if the ground is the, the part that's shaking. I love how honest Habakkuk is, how real he is. Brothers and sisters, we need this in church. We need honesty, we need to be real with one another the way that Habakkuk is real. He just says, I'm terrified, I'm, I'm anxious, I'm struggling, I'm terrified at what's about to happen. Is our worship service an appropriate place for someone to bring their cares, their anxieties, their burdens before the Lord? I love the way that one commentator, one commentator says it. He writes, Christian worship tends to be all triumphant, all good news. So what does that say to those who at the moment know nothing of triumph? They've missed it somehow? That their faith hasn't been enough to grant them success? That this whole business is fraud? That's why we need, in our church, we need songs that are lament songs. We need songs that we can cry out to the Lord, from sorrows deep I call. We need songs like, it is well, when sorrows like sea billows roll. We need a voice to speak the way Habakkuk is speaking. I'm terrified, I'm shaking, I can't even stand up, I'm falling down under the weight and the fear of what's about to happen. Why? End of verse 16. My Bible says, because I must wait quietly for the day of distress, for the people to arise who will invade us. Some of your translations might say a very different thing. There's two main interpretations. Uh, you can tell, by the way, that when there are two main interpretations in a verse, when they're worded very differently, you can tell that the original Hebrew is difficult wording to understand. Uh, ESV translation might translate a little bit differently, NIV a little bit differently. 
there's two main ways that, that Habakkuk's wording could be read. Either, number one, he's saying, I will wait quietly knowing Israel's about to be destroyed. I'm going to wait. I know Israel's about to be destroyed because Babylon's about to show up and destroy us. So I'm going to wait because we're about to be destroyed. Or, some of your translations might show this, I can wait quietly knowing that Babylon will ultimately be destroyed. I can wait quietly knowing that the people who are going to invade us, they have a day of distress coming. The, the good news is both of those are true. Not one of those is some form of heresy or even some form of a, of a misunderstanding of Habakkuk's main argument because he has actually said both of those things. He's asked God to judge Israel. He's asked God to discipline Israel. And so he knows that they're going to be judged. God said that in his second response, in his first and second response to Habakkuk. So Habakkuk knows Israel's about to get it. But Habakkuk also knows, because God told him, that Babylon's going to be destroyed as well. So either one of them works. They're, it's, very, it's, it's tricky language to figure out what he's saying, but either one of them works. So though I don't know exactly which one of them Habakkuk is saying here, and there's good arguments on both sides, the bottom line is I know that Habakkuk has said both in this book. This whole book has brought us to a place where Habakkuk has said, I know that we are going to be judged by Babylon, and I accept that, even though I'm terrified by it. And he's also said, I know that you've promised God to judge the wickedness of Babylon, and while I'm terrified of the destruction that Israel's going to face, I know that you, God, are right in what you are ordaining, and I know that you will ultimately bring justice in judging Babylon in perfect equity. So either one of those is what Habakkuk is saying. The good news is, Regardless of whichever translation you have or whatever interpretation you want to take, both of them work, number one. And secondly, the point of this verse is not that issue. The point of this verse is the transformation that is taking place in Habakkuk's heart. Where did he begin? He began by, how long? And now he ends by, I'll, I'll wait. He began by complaining and bringing his lament to God, which is totally appropriate and right to do. And now he says, I'm okay. Even though I'm terrified and my, my inward parts are trembling, I can wait. I will wait. That's why I prefer the translation that says, yet I will wait. Even though I'm terrified, yet I can wait quietly. Why can he wait quietly? He's questioned Babylon, the use of Babylon. He's questioned God not judging Israel. And then he's questioned God using Babylon to judge Israel. Now he fully accepts it. Why? One reason is he's learning throughout this entire process that we often learn more about God and his character and his goodness towards us in the hard times than the good times. Puritan author Stephen Charnock says it this way, we often learn more of God under the rod that strikes us than under the staff that comforts us. So he says, I can wait. Literally in Hebrew, it's I will rest there is a word in Hebrew for wait. And I love that he doesn't use that word because it could be saying, I'm just going to fold my arms. I know it's inevitable. I know it's coming and I can't do anything about it. So I'm just going to wait and it's going to happen. But that's not what he says. He says, I can wait. That's why my Bible says, wait quietly. I, I'm okay. Even though I'm not okay, I'm okay because I can rest. I know that you are in control, God. This is beautiful, poetic language. He isn't saying... It's just going to happen, so I'll wait for it to happen. He's saying, I can rest in it happening, even though it's terrifying. This is like the woman in Proverbs 31 who laughs at the days ahead. 
right? She just laughs. She knows God's in control. Even though this is terrifying, I still can smile and have joy in my heart because I know God's in control. Habakkuk is waiting with hope. That's what it means to rest, to wait with hope. So what does that look like? What does it look like to wait with hope? And how do we do this? What does it look like to wait with hope? And how do we do this? I want to give you this morning three realities about waiting with hope based off of this verse and countless others throughout the Bible. Three realities about waiting with hope. Reality number one, waiting with hope defies what is seen. Waiting with hope defies what is seen. What Habakkuk sees is devastation and destruction all around him in Israel. He's just been told that even more destruction is coming, that Israel is going to be destroyed by Babylon. That's what he can see. But he knows, he was told in chapter 2, the just live by faith. The righteous will live by faith. So he's putting that into practice right now. I can wait. Even though I haven't seen anything change, I can wait because waiting defies what you can see. Waiting with hope presses through what you see into what God knows. Sight is obviously what we see. Faith is what we know God sees. Faith doesn't mean that everything's going to be okay, but faith means you'll be okay. Faith doesn't mean that you are, uh, everything's going to go well in the end. You know it might not in this life. Faith is trusting that what God says will actually take place while you wait to see him do it. Faith keeps trusting that the light is coming while pressing forward in utter darkness. I love how Habakkuk is doing that. This book doesn't end with everything going well. In fact, it ends with everything going very badly. And it informs our prayer life, by the way. It's very informative for branches of evangelicalism. I I wouldn't even call it that, but branches of evangelicalism that would say, if you're praying for something and you don't get it, it's because you don't have enough faith. You've heard this, right? You've heard people say, in evangelicalism, in quote-unquote Christianity, people will say, you don't have what you're praying for because you don't have enough faith. If you only had enough faith, you would get what you're praying for. You could take them to the book of Habakkuk, right? Habakkuk was asking for things, and they're not happening. Habakkuk is going to end with everything terrible. Does that mean that Habakkuk does not have faith? Does that mean that Habakkuk is not trusting God? Maybe you're praying for something. You're praying, you're praying, you're praying. It doesn't change Is it because you don't have faith? Maybe you just don't have enough faith? What are we to do when we pray in such a way that we believe is in accordance to the will of God, but that prayer isn't answered? Is success, quote-unquote, is evident blessing, is what we are asking for being given to us, is that the only proof that we can have of faith? Is that the only proof that we can have that we're actually having faith? If God gives it to us, then we must have faith. Or is it possible to trust God and still not have what you're praying for? Habakkuk is proof positive. It's true that true faith, true trusting happens while nothing is happening. He brings it to God and nothing's happening. He defies what he sees. It looks like nothing is taking place, but he can wait with hope because he defies what is seen and presses beyond it. You could also go to Paul, right? The thorn in the flesh. Prays three times, God, would you take this from me? Take this from me, take this from me. And God says, my grace is sufficient for you. He answers him, just like God answers Habakkuk. But nothing changes in the immediate. Nothing changes in that moment. 
Did Paul not have enough faith? No, that's just absolute hogwash, right? Just throw that out. That's wrong doctrine to say that because you don't have something, it's because you don't have enough faith. The bottom line is, if you think that through rationally, if you don't have enough faith to get some temporal thing, maybe it's healing, just physical healing. That's a big issue. But if you don't have enough faith to ask God to heal you physically, then you sure don't have enough faith to ask God to heal you spiritually, right? You cannot be saved if you don't have enough faith to even be made well physically. There's no way your spiritual soul could be made well spiritually if you don't have that amount of faith. So God, in his grace, responds to Habakkuk and says, it's going to happen, but you need to wait. It's going to happen, but you need to wait. And therefore, in the waiting, it does not mean that Habakkuk does not have faith. Paul had faith. Habakkuk has faith. The reality of God's faithfulness towards us is not measured by the visibility of his hand at work in our lives. You might be having all faith and trust in him, and he might be completely faithful to you, and nothing's happening. That's why faith has to, and waiting with hope has to defy what is seen. It looks like nothing's happening, and it has to press beyond that. The Christian's hope defies what we can see and is ripe with the promises of what cannot be seen. The world's hope is hollow. The believer's hope is firm. And God always puts us into situations. He loves us so much that he puts us into situations where he knocks the legs out from under us so that we are forced to rely on him and depend on him and press through what we can see. God's always more interested in deepening our sense of dependency upon him than he is in giving us reasons not to need him at all. So waiting with hope presses through what's seen. It defies what you naturally see. Number two, waiting with hope demands and depends on what is unseen. Waiting with hope demands what is unseen, not in a demanding way like you're demanding something from God, but hope cannot exist without something that you don't have yet, but you cling to it. So waiting with hope depends on what you can't see. It demands on what you can't see. So number one, waiting with hope defies what you do, do see. And then secondly, waiting with hope demands and depends on what you can't see. Habakkuk has just rehearsed in his poem that God will save Israel. He's done it in the past. He's going to do it again. Habakkuk has called upon God with the covenant-keeping name, Yahweh. He's saying, I know you're not going to let us go. I know that you are not going to ultimately let us be destroyed. But in the moment, it sure looks like we're going to be destroyed. Waiting with hope clings to what is unseen. This is Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. It's the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. What has not been seen by Habakkuk? Well, God has promised he's going to preserve his people even though that they are going to be judged. And secondly, that Babylon's going to be judged for their wickedness and justice will be done. We haven't seen any of those things happening. But we know, we trust, and Habakkuk's in the trust. Even though he hasn't seen it, God said it's going to happen, and therefore Habakkuk can wait with hope. You guys remember that old bumper sticker? Maybe it was a license plate frame. It used to say, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. Good bumper sticker. It's on your car. No judgment whatsoever. Um, but I think it puts a little bit too much power in our laps. Like, maybe it's not true if we don't believe it. It should just say, God said it. That settles it, whether or not we believe it. God said it. And if God says it's going to happen, it's going to happen. Now, it's our choice in waiting with hope to believe that it's going to happen. That's up to us to choose. 
but it's going to happen. There's an amazing illustration of this. You know it in Daniel chapter 3. We don't have enough time to go there, but Daniel chapter 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It's an amazing example of what it looks like to cling to hope in something that you don't even see. You remember King Nebuchadnezzar makes a law that they have to bow down and worship his golden image, which, by the way, that's only a problem for monotheists, right? Because he tells the people, worship me and worship all your other gods. It doesn't matter, but right now, bow down to my God, add them to your list. Only monotheists have this problem. Polytheists don't have a problem with this. You can bow down to anything. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they worship the one true God. And so they say, no, we're not going to. Which, by the way, that's the real miracle in that story. The real miracle happens before they're saved from the fiery furnace, right? The real miracle happens when they choose to stand up and say, we will not bow no matter what. That's the real miracle. And what is that miracle based off of? What is that declaration based on? Remember what they say? They say, king, oh king, oh great king, we, we will not bow to you. And they say, if our God, it's literally in the Hebrew, if our God exists, we, we've never seen him, if he exists, he's going to deliver us. And they say two things, very specific. He can deliver us from the fire, and he will deliver us from you. And then they add this amazing line, but even if he does not, we will not bow. Even if he doesn't deliver us from the fiery furnace, we know he'll ultimately deliver us from you. I love how they say that. He can deliver us from the fire. He will deliver us from you. But even if he doesn't deliver us from the fire, we're still not going to bow. We need that clause in our own lives. We need the clause of, but even if. I know that God's going to come through even if it doesn't happen the way that I think it's going to happen. No barrier can keep God from coming to the aid of his people. He will always deliver us, even if it's through death. And that's why ultimately for the believer, the greatest hope that we have that we cling to is the hope of heaven. That's the hope that we have. That's the greatest hope that we cling to. Waiting with hope defies what we see here on earth and it clings to, it demands a hope that's greater beyond what we can even see, beyond what we can even comprehend. C.S. Lewis says it this way, some mortals say of some temporal suffering, no future bliss can make up for it not knowing that heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn even that agony into glory. What about you? What are you waiting for that's in a moment of agony that you know heaven will work backwards to undo that agony in your own life? If you knew that this world is not all that there is, how would it affect how you live in the middle of the pain you're going through? If you knew that there was something coming, if you knew that there was a hope that was out there that was far greater, far longer than anything in this world, how would it affect the way you process and live through pain? Hope is how we believe that there's more to this story. It's how we pull out of our pain a trust that God is doing something in it. So, Waiting with hope defies what we see. Waiting with hope depends on and demands something that we can't see. And finally, number three, waiting with hope always delivers on its promises. Waiting with hope always delivers on its promises. For Habakkuk, he waited for God to act, and God did exactly what he said he was going to do. He brought Babylon in to judge Israel, 
And then he judged Babylon by the Medo-Persians. He destroyed the Babylonian Empire and delivered Israel back into their land. More than that, God sent his Messiah, the anointed one, to win a perfect record of righteousness so that anyone who would believe in him would be counted as righteous in his finished work, not in their own efforts. So Habakkuk was waiting upon God to deliver. And some of it was delivered in his lifetime. Some of it was not delivered in his lifetime. But God always keeps his promises. And we can trust, we can know with confident assurance that hope, as we wait with hope in our hearts, God will always deliver on what he's promised. You can, that's a money-back guarantee. He will always deliver what he's promised. There's always more than what we see. And God will make good on his promises. That's why Job in Job 19 verses 25 through 27 says, when all this is done, remember the verse, my Redeemer lives, I know my Redeemer lives. When all this is done, I'm going to be with him, I'm going to live forever with him, and all this is going to be over, and I'm going to be at home, at peace, safe in the arms of God. That's all the comfort and hope I need in the middle of this trial. Peter says it this way in 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 3 through 5, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope. It's not a dead hope, it's a living hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, it's undefiled, and it will not fade away. But it's reserved in heaven for you. You don't have it now, it's there. It's reserved in heaven for you. But here's the good news. You are protected by the power of God through faith, for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. The old adage is true. It's truly always darkest right before the dawn. If we fix our eyes on Christ, even when we just see very dimly, we fix our eyes on him and we wait with hope, pressing through what we don't see, pressing through what we do see and saying there's more than this and knowing God will deliver and make good on his promises. Whatever you're going through, in the end, you know it will not be wasted. It will be worth it. So what about you? Can I just ask you honestly, what is it that you're waiting for? Maybe in the midst of hearing this, in the midst of studying God's word together, the Holy Spirit has been bringing to your mind, to your thought, to your affections, something that you've been waiting for, you've been longing for, you've been hoping for, and it just has not happened. And you're wondering, God, where are you? What are you doing? Why haven't you stepped in? Why aren't you acting? What is it that you're waiting for? And how can you turn your waiting into hopeful waiting, waiting with hope, where you don't just say, I'm going to wait, but you say, I can rest. I can rest. Even though everything around me is destroyed, I can rest knowing I have God. This is what uh, Job says. Um, He says, in the middle of the waiting, I lay my hands upon my lips. I shall not even attempt to speak. Habakkuk would say, amen and amen. I wait quietly. I can rest. I've said everything I need to say. God's responded to me. And now I can rest. Job said it in an incredibly profound way. Job chapter 13, verse 15. Though God slay me, yet I will hope in him. He's the one doing the slaying, and yet I'm going to hope in him. How do we do that? Why can we do that? Isaiah 40, verse 31, those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. 
Psalm 62, verse 5, My soul, wait in silence for God only, for my hope is in Him. You can wait with hope. You remember what God told Habakkuk in chapter 2, verse 3? God says to Habakkuk, The vision is yet for an appointed time. It hastens towards the goal. It won't fail. Though it tarries, wait for it. Some translations say, If it seems slow... Wait for it. This is, this is real life. It seems slow. It seems like justice is slow to happen. It seems like peace is slow to come. It seems like reconciliation and healing are slow to happen. It seems like it is a slow ordeal. And we tend, if you're like me, to give God a date, a deadline, and a demand. God, I want you to act on this day. It's on my calendar, it's in my phone, and it's in the cloud somewhere, so you obviously can see it. Could you please work on my deadline, on my timetable? It requires faith to wait. So what promise of God to you does he seem slow to fulfill in your own life? Everyone has unfulfilled desires with a date attached to them and a deadline attached to them. The majority of Living by faith is waiting. It's a waiting game. So how do we do it? We've seen what it looks like to wait with hope. We know what it looks like. It looks like defying what you can see, uh, depending on what you can't see, and knowing that God's going to deliver on what he's promised. But how do you do it? How do you wait with hope? We can wait with hope if we trust that God is who he says he is, that he is good, but do you trust that he is good? Do you trust that he is who he says he is? If you're struggling with that, first of all, I totally understand that. I understand that struggle. But I want to take you to a place where you can know with confident assurance that God is good. If you're struggling to trust that God is good, you need to look to another. There's another person in the Bible who experienced such turmoil that his inward parts trembled just like Habakkuk's. That decay entered his bones so much so that he couldn't even stand up any longer, but fell flat on his face. In Mark chapter 4, verses 33 through 35, turn there with me. Mark chapter 4. This is in the Garden of Gethsemane. Or I'm sorry, Mark chapter 14. Verses 33 through 35, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus takes with him his three closest disciples, Peter, James, and John. And my Bible says in Mark 14, verse 33, he began to be very distressed and troubled, greatly distressed, agonizomai, he was in agony, troubled. And he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. I could die here right now. Remain here and keep watch. And he went a little beyond them and fell to the ground and began to pray that if it were possible, the hour might pass him by. And he was praying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. In so much turmoil and so much agony, he enters this garden. He can't even hold himself up. He falls down flat on his face. 
and in utter anguish cries out to his father and says, is there any other way? Please remove this cup. What's the cup? We saw it in the book of Habakkuk, right? The cup of God's wrath that's going to be given to any non-believer who chooses in their willful rebellion against God to say, I can find my own way to be moral. I can find my own way to be good. I don't need your help. I don't need your provision. God says there's a cup of wrath that will be given to them, handed to them that they themselves must drink on judgment day. But the Father in eternity past, along with the Son and the Spirit, said, let's drink that cup on their behalf so that they don't have to drink it. That's why Jesus is in turmoil here, because he's the one that is going to drink this cup, the cup of the Father's wrath, the cup of pure, unadulterated judgment. It's justice. Every sin that you've ever committed, whether by thought, by attitude, by action, every sin that you've ever committed will be punished. And the punishment for your sin is in this cup. And Jesus says, the only way that they can be saved is me drinking this cup. Is there any other way? And all he hears from the Father is silence. There is no other way. And that's why he says, yet not what I will, but what you will. In essence, what Jesus is saying is, I will drink that cup of judgment so that they never have to fear. They never have to fear wrath, judgment, punishment for sins. All fear of future wrath is gone because Jesus says, I'll drink it in their place. That's why we sing the song, in our place condemned he stood. Brothers and sisters, that's why we celebrate communion. We still have a cup that we get to drink, but we get to drink this cup This is a privilege to take this cup. This isn't a punishment to take this cup, to drink this cup, because Jesus has taken the cup of our punishment. We get to take the cup of privileged blessing and to drink the cup of redemption. Jesus' blood poured out for us, sealing that new covenant so that he himself would place in us a heart that beats for him, that loves him. So if you don't know Jesus Christ, and you're either here this morning in this library, or you're watching live stream, if you don't know Jesus Christ, then today is the day to take all of your sins and to say, Jesus, I can't do anything with these. And I don't want to be punished for these. And I know that these stand in the way between me and having a right relationship with you. I want to be reconciled to you. Today is the day to take all of your sin to him and say, please make an end to it. Please forgive it. And please reconcile me to you. Please make us friends because right now I know I'm your enemy. Please make me your friend. But if you are here this morning, whether in the library or watching from home, and you know Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, you know that your cup, that God's wrath in the cup in your hand has been taken from your hand and another has has taken it and drank it to the dregs. You know that somebody else took your punishment upon themselves so you don't have any fear of future wrath. If that is you this morning, then we have reason to celebrate. We have reason to rejoice. We have reason to remember. Just like Habakkuk remembers what God did in the Exodus, we have reason to remember what God did in redemption, in saving us, in the cross and the resurrection. That's why for two months now, I have just been longing to partake of this with our church family. 
And I know that we're not all here together, and I know that it's still strange that there are some back home that have to take this via live stream. I know that that doesn't feel right. I think it's a lot better uh, than if we were all just at home. It's more of a, a situation where a uh, majority of us are here, and there are those that I would take, like in a, in a hospital situation, if somebody's in a hospital bed, I can take communion to them and partake with them. It's something like that where we can still be together as a church family. But brothers and sisters, this This table that's laid before us, figuratively speaking, this table of the Lord's Supper is a table where God says to us through his work on the cross, I'm I'm calling for you to remember, to rest, and rejoice. Literally everything we're studying in in the book of Habakkuk is everything that Jesus says at the table. Do this in remembrance of me. Rest in my finished work. Stop working to earn God's favor. Stop working to earn his love. Remember, do it and remember to me. Rest in my finished work and rejoice. This is the cup of the new covenant. Right after they would have taken this together, they would have sung a hymn. Rejoice because you know that God has taken care of the biggest problem. So every other problem that you have in your life is an easy problem for him to fix. And if he doesn't fix it now, he's going to fix it in heaven and work it backwards and undo all that was sad. That's why we stand here in the middle of this moment between the already and the not yet. And that's why we gather together. That's why we love taking the Lord's Supper. Because we we are reminding each other in corporate worship together. As we gather as a family, we're reminding each other. Remember, do this in remembrance of me until I come again. Until he comes. Do this to declare he is coming again. And he's going to see me a part of his bride. Washed by the blood of the Lamb. How is that possible? I encourage you to open up this first compartment here. Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread. It was a piece of matzah. And he would have taken this bread and he would have broken it and then given it to his disciples. Again, we can't do that here, but um, just picture the bread being given to you. And Jesus says, this is my body broken and given to you. You don't have to work to get God. God says, I'll give you me. I'm giving you myself. And I'll do the work that it requires to give it to you. I will be broken so that you can be made whole. Brothers and sisters, if you've come this morning to worship the Lord and you feel, you look inward and you feel, I have no business being here. All I see is sin. I see struggle. I see hardship in my own soul. I see places where I cannot make things right in my heart. That's why we gather at the table to remember the assurance of pardon that we have because of who Jesus is, not because of who we are. So on the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. He says, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's remember that we have been made whole because Jesus was broken for us. Let's take this and remember together. And in the same way, he took the cup. This is the cup of the new covenant. Jesus said, this is my blood, which is poured out for the sins of many. It's not the sins of all, because there are some who will choose to reject Jesus. But Jesus says, I have given freely the offer to everyone. And if you would choose to follow me and my amazing new covenant with you to place in you a heart that loves me, then you would know complete redemption taken from the slave market of sin and placed into the family of God. What can wash away our sins? It is nothing but the blood of Jesus. That's why he said, 
This is my blood, and it's poured out for sins, because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Jesus died so that we could live forever in his presence, in his family, in full reconciled assurance of pardon. As often as you do this, do this in remembrance of him. Let's remember him together as we take. And Father, we do partake together, remembering and proclaiming. It's exactly what you told us to do. Remember, do this in remembrance of me, and do this proclaiming my death, burial, and resurrection until I come again. God, that's what we want to do even now as we sing. We want to declare your death, your resurrection is what we rely on. It's what we wait for and hope in. And God, I pray even as we sing that the words that we would sing and the words that we have just heard from from you, from your scripture, would change us and transform us, bring to our understanding and our remembrance what it is that we ourselves are waiting for, and may we declare with faith, by faith alone, that we will wait and rely on your hope, rely in hope on your character. And in your word we rely. We do that now, God, because of who you are and what you've done for us. And we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior.